Welcome to the newest episode in the Owens Recovery Science Podcast Catalog. On this episode, President and Founder Johnny Owens speaks with Dr. Luke Hughes of the University of Northumbria. They discuss Dr. Hughes's work on blood flow restriction exercise and how it might be used to assist space travelers like myself in recovery back to terrestrial living. They are joined by barbecue enthusiast and beard care expert Kyle Kimbrell as well as Benjamin a chicken legs a Weatherford <laughs> and now without further ado I would like to introduce the podcast as legendary wingman Ed McMahon used to say hey What's up, fellas? I got Ben Weatherford back on the podcast. Kyle Kimbrell running the wheels of steel. Going to drop in some bad jokes every now and then. And then I got my Welsh brother from another mother. Third time appearance on our podcast, Luke Hughes. Welcome back, Luke Hughes. He's here. It's He's good. there. He's every fucking where, Luke Hughes. <laughs> Hughes. <laughs> Lasso. <laughs> Uh, so it only this, took it only took three times to get a, a, a good nice introduction so thanks oh, yeah, yeah, man. <laughs> we, we left johnny in charge of the intro this time luke it's normally me so that's why yeah. uh i loved it thanks johnny yeah man do you watch uh wrexham the yes, show that's yeah. actually that's where i'm from isn't it so it's a uh, big hype around the town yeah that's my hometown that's your hometown yeah, yeah, that's my hometown. So oh, I live. Awesome. I didn't realize we haven't actually spoke about this yet, but yeah. So that's my hometown. So the the racecourse ground. Um, I live probably about a three minute drive from there. Um, I've played football on that on that um that stadium. No way. So that's been, so. It... I've been, I've been watching Wrexham since I was able to walk, and my dad used to take me. Um, when we had a little bit of glory back in two thousand and five yeah. was my highlight when when to <laughs> played in the cup. Elderly Vans Cup Final, Millennium Stadium, where I, I dyed my hair red. My dad made me dye my hair red, and then I got suspended <laughs> from school on the Monday. <laughs> but and then, then we were rubbish for, for about 10 years. And yeah, it's um, interesting. But now time. you're coming back, baby. We're coming back. We've got that Hollywood money. So I yeah, know. Uh, it's an exciting time at the time. It's a, have you guys watched it, Ben Kyle? No, I'm, I'm just ready to ask. What are we? I don't even know what we're talking about right now. Oh, we're talking about the football, the real football, and these guys zone out right now. So, um, Ryan Reynolds and uh, I'm blanking on the other guy's name who does from Always Sunny. Yeah, 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 Rob McElhenney. They bought this Welsh um, lower, lower, lowest level, I guess. Sorry, Luke. Um, Team lead team. (laughs) Yeah, 
who've been struggling in this little Welsh town. And so it's a documentary of them trying to bring this club back to glory. Well, it's actually cool. real. Yeah, yeah. It's it's a documentary on Hulu. Oh, I thought it was like, you know, fake, like it was a show and it was all fake. Oh, man. Ryan Reynolds brought That's in all true. that all that gen money and that Marvel superhero money and, and they're buying good players now and it's coming oh. back. Yeah. Yeah. They're buying good players from, from two or three leagues above, which is ultimately why why we're doing well. But yeah. um yeah, it's also <laughs> like it's um yeah. Yeah, it's real, Carl. When you uh, when you eventually come over to this side of the pond for the first yeah. time, well, all of you will have to take a trip to, to Wrexham. I'm in. I, you know what else? I want to go see that. Uh, is it no? Is it is it the um, hurling? Is that hurling. Welsh too? Hurling? No, that's oh, hurling. Um, that's yeah. Irish. I. That's right. That's right. It's yeah, Irish. That's that's Stephen. That's a Same brutal thing. sport, man. We can. We can go watch, but I'm I, no way I'm playing. I don't want to play it. No, it looked brutal, but it looked like <laughs> super entertaining to watch. Have you guys seen hurling before? With the giant, where they flip the giant um, piece of wood? No, no. It's like it's some weird kind of hybrid between lacrosse and like rugby and and baseball. They have these long handled paddle looking things that are i think they're leather so they have kind of like this scoop sort of paddle and then there's this ball that they they literally like flick it in the air and they take a full swing like a baseball bat and hit it and they, they play on this massive field but i but i think what is the most interesting about that sport beyond i had never ever seen it before and i saw a commercial i saw like a report on it or something on uh, flipping through channels um the it's towns or counties that basically compete against one another like they have their own team and it's very very strict like who can be on your on your team you know so it's like just very kind of pure in, in that regard i felt like like there's like the like like ryan reynolds ain't coming in and corrupting hurling you know like we're not getting this <laughs> this kind of thing no. happening it's just like your community your people, are you good or not, you know? Um, and, you yeah. know, a couple really legit players could literally, like, transform, like, a community kind of thing. So it's kind of neat. From that so how did, you, how did you come across this? Like, Dude, what, I don't know. What, one what of kind of research were you doing when you came across her? <laughs> that, was, one of those? that was my question, Ben. <laughs> yeah, it was, was super random. It was super random. It's quarterly. ESPN took like 20 eight. minutes to explain it. It might have been. <laughs> It might have been the Ocho. It might have ESPN been the, the Ocho. Potential yeah. that it was that. I don't know. It was. I just remember sitting fascinated. Like, what are they actually talking about right now? Right after um, the cornhole championships, and yeah, you know, okay. No, hey, cornhole's prime yeah. time now, Ben. Oh, it's big money. In fact, there's corruption in cornhole. I saw recently. So yeah, that and fishing. They're using weights. Yeah, weights in the fish. And they're like that. messing with the bag. They're deflating the cornhole bags, like Tom Brady and Robert Kraft got yeah. their Flake tentacles gate, into yeah, got their tentacles into cornhole somehow. So my my local yokel cousins out in West Texas, they got busted um, in uh, competition with steers because they glued fake hair on it to make it look like it had more hair. And so the hair started falling off during the competition. So they is that is are they judging the steers by their appearance? Well, I guess if you have hair in certain spots, you know, like 
it's it's good. Like Kyle, if you had hair on your head, you would be like much more oh, marketable. Um, so <laughs> having hair in the right places matters. Uh, oh my god! <laughs> Anyways, moving on. Uh, so the reason why we, we this is a I thought, yeah. I, wasn't I the one that was supposed to make the bad jokes? Uh, <laughs> The reason why we have our, our man Luke on again for the third time is he's made a shift. Um, he's gone up to the, the orbits above the Earth, so he's working in space now um, or working on space things now with BFR. And so Ben and I just uh, were able to go hang out and work at NASA a little bit for a day. Wish we were there for longer. We got the coolest tour, the tour I didn't get to have when I was a kid on my field trip to NASA. We got the behind-the-scenes tour, so... Um, and Luke had already been talking with NASA there with our friends. And so Luke, welcome back, man. And, and want to give us kind of a, an overview of, of what you're doing now and kind of the cool things you're, you're seeing. Yeah, sure. Thanks, Johnny. Well, first of all, I am extremely jealous of that thought because I haven't ever been over to there. So that's something on my bucket list. Um, yeah. So at the minute, um, as of well, it was January, February this year. Um, I'm now up in, in the northeast of England, uh, where the Vikings are, as Kyle always says. Um, and I'm working in the aerospace uh, medicine and rehabilitation lab here at Northumbria University. Um, so we're working on three, three kind of key space-related projects, which are funded by the UK Space Agency and, and ESA. So the main kind of focus of the current projects is looking at lumbopelvic deconditioning space flight so um to give you the short when astronauts go to space when there's no head to toe loading the spine extends and the spinal curvature changes muscles of the lower back atrophy and then this, this leads to low back pain and altered kinematics so when they come back to earth you need quite extensive reconditioning so we're looking at tracking this in astronauts european and nasa astronauts before and after space flight so I will get to come over to your your side of the pond and your your end, Johnny. Nice. Um, we'll meet you there. Do some testing, um, and then we test them when they come back from the space station, approximately six months later, and then, then throughout a reconditioning period, and we're looking at the level of deconditioning and developing a a simple non-invasive way of quantifying the change in curvature and low back pain that could be used for patients with low back pain on it, which is kind of like a key aspect of any spaceflight related research if you want to get funding to do research in spaceflight area space field it has to have terrestrial health implications um, which which kind of makes sense so that's that's one key project the the second one is basically looking at all the same things but in a bed rest study um, so up in the mountains of Slovenia next year we're going to be looking at um, lumbar pelvic deconditioning in people undergoing 60 days of head down tilt bed rest so they're basically completely in the bed yeah 60 days at, at six nice. degree head down tilt which is which is like the um, angle used to simulate fluid shifts that you get in space which I'm, I'm sure we'll talk about a bit later so yeah these guys are paid like a lot of money to, to so be so who signs days. up for that yeah it <laughs> sounds awful so, to yeah, be I don't honest, think you could pay me enough money for that I mean, when I kind of find out what they're typically paid, I was thinking about switching from the researcher team to the. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's that good. <laughs> yeah. Uh, dude, the amount yeah. of muscle you're going to lose, I mean, it's going to take a year to try and get that back if you ever do. Yeah, there's quite a lot. There's quite a lot yeah. of deconditioning, yeah. but they, 
in in previous bed rest studies, this is going to be my first one, but in previous well, my current bosses um, done a lot of these, and previously there wasn't a huge amount of emphasis on rehab after these studies, but now you know ethically there is a lot more time put into that as well. So we'll be looking at the effects in simulated good bed rest is like a good analog for space flight, um, and then kind of the third area I suppose is you know relevant to us is with the BFR. So starting to explore how blood restriction might be useful as a countermeasure to spaceflight, um, which is partly because um, I've done BFR research. I'm also a space, bit of a space nerd. So combining the two, it's quite fun. So we've got up in the lab here, we've got, a, it's called the variable gravity suspension system. So we can simulate uh, microgravity in the same way that NASA and ESA can with their vertical treadmill facility. But we have the added benefit that we can simulate hypogravity, so different levels of, of low gravity. Um, so we can currently do lunar gravity, which is about 16% body weight. Um, we can't quite get Martian yet, which is around 30%. We need to build a new part on the suspension system. But basically, we can we can simulate um, lunar, lunar loading, lunar gravity, without just using like an alter G or something that kind of unloads someone vertically. We can actually unload them from, from, from head to toe. So um, that's kind of the advantage of our system. So we can do lots of cool research, like looking at exercise in there, looking at fluid shifts, just general suspension. So they're kind of that's kind of the key things I'm working on at the minute. And I think that's what's interesting. Ben and I you know, at NASA, we were talking with, and it, I just need to plug you and and our and our good friends Kyle Hackney and and Stephen Patterson. You have a really great. This is potential applications for BFR in space. And it was interesting, like you pointed out. It's always been microgravity, you know, which is just this kind of orbital thing that we're looking at. And, and the space station, I guess, is still microgravity. But now we're looking at changes in gravity from a lunar to a Martian, you know, this interplanetary plan that we have. And, and not only changes in gravity, but the, um, the ability to, to even exercise on these little ships that are going to have to go to these, to these planets is going to be different. You can't have these giant machines like they have on the space station on the on the Artemis or whatever. I think that's what it's called. Yeah, yeah. No, the space station like the current exercise equipment. Um, so kind of three key bits of equipment: the treadmill, um, the cyclogometer, um, are kind of the two uh, ones that are used mainly. Um, and then they've got the you've got the advanced resistive exercise device, which allows some um, forms of resistance exercise, typically multi joint bilateral stuff. But the problem is, is that well, currently the current exercise countermeasure program on the space station, like it does, like mitigate deconditioning to an extent, but it, it can't completely ameliorate it. So when astronauts come back to Earth, like they are still deconditioned, and you you see them be like, <coughs> pardon me, you see them be carried off like the, off the space shuttles, um, yeah. and then they undergo like like ESA's rehab program is a minimum of three weeks. So they're they're pretty they're, they're pretty beat up when they come back down. So the current program isn't 100% effective. And then also it's going to be limited, as you said, Joy, like with future spacecraft, like the Orion spacecraft, like there's no way they're going to fit a treadmill in that. So basically at the moment, um, space agencies are looking for ways to optimize exercise countermeasures to space. So you have like your nutritional countermeasures, your pharmacological countermeasures, but exercise really is like the cornerstone countermeasure and the one that's been used for decades. It's kind of the, the most effective one. Um, but the issue, as you said, is like 
future missions to, to, to Lunar Gateway, so Lunar Space Station, Lunar Service, and then on to Mars. Smaller crafts going to have less room for exercise equipment. There's going to be less capacity for vibration. So, you know, actually causing vibration from high intensity exercise can be pretty problematic in space because you can quite literally knock the spacecraft off course. So, yeah. you know, that's, that's something that needs to be minimized. And then the, the thing people don't often think about is the actual cost of the exercise. Like you have to remove CO2 from a very small tin can basically in space, not quite a tin can, but you have to remove CO2 and keep remove sweat and moisture and keep things in a really finite ring. It's more so than you would in like a, a physiology lab. So those kind of factors um, are important as well, like high intensity exercise. You know, I think there was a paper, I can't remember the exact um, details, but it was saying that if, if, if you're performing high intensity exercise, like the CO2 production, the sweat production, if you were to do that on the on the uh, Orion spacecraft, which is planned for these these missions beyond low Earth orbit, you'd be able to do like 20 minutes of exercise and have to wait eight hours before you were able to do something again in in that spacecraft. So there's wow. yeah, tons of problems, tons of problems. Yeah, I never knew that CO2 piece. Like it's tenfold higher, I think is what you guys cited up there. And that basically you get this um, kind of CO2 acidosis from it, which is all sorts of problems, demineralizes bone and things like that. Yeah, and so that and also related to the diet as well. And Kyle, Kyle Hartney did a great job of that in the paper. Um, I think with the, with the CO2, it's it just normal levels tend to be higher um, on the space station as they do compared to Earth. Just, you know, it's in terms of removing CO2, it's a confined space, multiple reasons. Um, but yeah, so like doing exercise, producing more CO2 then adds to this. So it has to be removed. So like actually people think that, you know, the size of the spacecraft is the biggest barrier for, for everything, but specifically also exercise countermeasures, whereas actually it's maybe like the, the life support system that might be the biggest issue. So, you know, that's crazy in the paper, in the paper, one of the things we spoke about was, you know, if BFR can is low intensity and, and reduces these, responses um then perhaps you know life support systems don't need to be as advanced or as work as hard or as big or as heavy and all things which kind of factor in yeah you cited i guess bfr was that off of alex Ferrons's work maybe that co2 levels are less than high intensity like i can honestly say i've never looked at what bfr does to co2 levels so. <laughs> to be honest that was we didn't include that until after the first round of uh, revision so um one of the reviewers pointed out that you know CO two is high on the space station. So, um, what's happening physiologically with BFR? And yeah, we we touched on some of Alex Franz's work and just basically showed that how any changes are kind of rapidly returned to the baseline as well in terms of in the blood because this idea of like the hypercapnia with with high levels of CO two like in the blood, astronauts get headaches and mm -hmm. lots of other things associated with that. But we we kind of just showed that. The limited data we have suggests these changes are really transient so we wouldn't imagine it would have a longer term impact on like their health in that respect but ultimately we don't know until we try it out there yeah so i guess two things potential for bfr then is it's a space saver um, ha, 
you guys get it? Thanks. Uh, Thank you. Oh, boy. Uh, you been holding on to that one? I enjoyed that one. I've been way, man. I'm, I didn't hear a word you said, Luke, because I was just thinking, when am I going to get this one? When am I going to drop this one? <laughs> God, I this. Um, so, yeah, but it is a kind of a gem in a box. So you have that piece, but then also the potential reduced CO2. Um, which was a whole, we didn't get asked that question in NASA. I'm glad we didn't because I would have been like, I don't know. But um, that's a whole nother piece. It's pretty interesting. So I guess let's go into other problems. You know, so we know the CO2 thing and space um, limitations. Um, what about um, the fluid shifts? Yeah, so that's kind of one of the first things that occurs um, when astronauts go up to space. The, the, the head-to-toe gravity vector is removed. The fluid shifts from the lower limbs towards the head. So a couple of problems arise from that. So the astronauts get, um, you know, um, swelling in the face. Um, so they get puffy face and then they get chicken legs, which is the scientific term that's <laughs> used for that. It's puffy, puffy face, chicken leg astronauts. Yeah, you like, <laughs> honestly, it's, that's, that terminology has been used for, for years, but they actually do look like that if you look at a, a before and after. Um, so that, we that we saw that noise. man. We saw the astronaut pictures before, <laughs> the ones that are up there right now, and then we saw some pictures or videos of them on the space station. It looked like they had gained five hundred pounds. Their faces were so swollen; <laughs> it was crazy. We're like, "What is wrong with their heads?" <laughs> the like, the camera not... literally adds literally adds ten pounds. <laughs> yeah, space, <laughs> space so yeah, I mean, it is a yeah. visible shift. I mean, all that fluid goes centrally. Right. Yeah, so up towards the head. So in terms of the head, there's the, the nausea, the headaches, and there's some evidence that it, implicating it in um, changes in, in eyesight in astronauts. But then you get, in terms of the central cardiovascular type of changes, you get a lot of the fluid moves into um, increasing central blood volume, increasing cardiac preload, stroke volume, cardiac output um, in the early, you know, the first week or two of space. But which just seem to, the data we have just seem to, to level out. Um, after a while, but you know you've got the you don't have much blood flow or blood pooling in the lower limbs like you would on Earth. So that's <clears throat> hypothesized to be one of the factors that leads to astronauts experiencing orthostatic intolerance when they come come back to Earth, mm -hmm. um, getting dizzy, like not just when they actually get back over there, but on the way back in, like through reentry as well. Um, lots of astronauts report the feeling of like dizziness and faintness. Yeah, you guys put out, it's actually the hardest part of this is when they return to Earth and dealing with being back in whatever term you use for Earth gravity um, is actually harder than what you're dealing with in space. Yeah, they actually adapt, like astronauts adapt quite quickly to, to what's happened in space. So you have the fluid shifts in you know, the, sort of the acute phase, if you call it the first couple of weeks, and then then you get you know, your muscle atrophy, your release of bone mineral from skeletal stores, the cardiovascular deconditioning kind of um, occurs more chronically. Um, and obviously, the longer you're up there, the longer, uh, the more deconditioning you get. But actually, yeah, returning to Earth presents multiple problems because all of a sudden you've got that 1G again active from the head to toe. So we're focusing on currently on the effect on the spine, lumbar pelvic deconditioning. And the, what that means for low back pain and how difficult it is to rehab but everything else is affected by that as well so the muscles the bones and, and one of the biggest issues when astronauts come back like in terms of well i can't speak for nasa's rehab you guys probably know more about that than me but in terms of the european space agency like their 
they have a three week like rehab program and it focuses predominantly on like postural control first. That's mm-hmm. one of the biggest issues astronauts have when they when they come back. So it's working on postural control and then starting to um, work on rehabbing the muscle and muscle growth and then improving the strength and, and function. So kind of the postural control sensory side of things is one of the biggest issues. And it kind of makes sense because you think as soon as they're up in space, they don't really have any sensory input. Like it's pretty much in space, astronauts use their legs to like hook them onto a bar or something yeah. when they're doing some experimental yeah, cool. work with their hands. Yeah. So they, they pretty much don't use them at all. So, um, yeah, it's returning back to Earth as, yeah, lots of problems. Yeah, I think it cool. was similar. I think it was like 30 days though, right, Ben? Did they, they're like in quarantine and also working on rehab and then vestibular is their main one right off the bat, like what you're seeing mm-hmm. over there. Like we saw pictures of these guys getting off, just off the shuttle or something. I don't know, it wasn't shuttle, it was whatever. Mm-hmm. And dude, these guys look like they didn't even know how to walk. And they yeah. they gave them flowers, like they're holding these like bouquet of flowers, I guess, like welcome back to earth. And it's like, these dudes are gonna wipe out. Like maybe give them the flowers later or put them in a vase somewhere. <laughs> they need their hands right now. <laughs> they got like people around them, like look like they're gonna catch them while they're holding their stupid roses. Um, so. Yeah, I, mean, then, I do. I do remember that one month time frame just kept coming up for some reason yeah. as far as part of that reconditioning. But yeah, the images we saw of people coming back, it was they had a handler, you know, had to have yeah. somebody at, on each side helping, like hold, you know, them walk them. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> they like regress back to one years old. They carry. It looks like. It's what it looks like. like. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, it's well, the chicken legs. Yeah. I'd be in trouble if I went up there. I don't have enough volume in my legs to contribute to this central shift in fluid. So, um, you know, one of the things that I really didn't have an appreciation for before talking with the folks at NASA is just the time frame for being on the space station. You know, it's like you're up there for six months, potentially a year in some cases. So the idea that three weeks to a month is really you know, that big of a, a time frame to make change after you've been up there that long just seems inadequate. And because you said like it, spinal bone loss is like 1% a month. Is that what it was? Or a week? I forgot what it between, was. Between between one, uh, between one and 3% per month, depending on um, location. But six was a, months of that. There's a paper out recently, um, which came out after we'd um publish this paper or during the extremely long review process we had which i won't get into but um we um this paper showed that in, in the astronauts that when they lost like bone mineral density when they come when they come back it's still like it's still not recovered a year a year later um, and actually i think i can't remember the exact i have to to, to dig it out but i think they it was the equivalent of like eight years or nine years of aging in, in like six months in terms of the, the state of the bone compared to age match controls on earth which is just like insane yeah it's terrible well getting back to the fluid shift can you what you might know about it hackney's the first person turned me on to this is the russian rings that they used to use I, I, maybe they still use them I, I couldn't get a clearance in if they do or not the um yeah the bracelet cuffs as they as they call them so um yeah, yeah they're essentially like bfr cuffs they just look a bit more medieval <laughs> less, they're Russian. Uh, yeah. yeah, there's no co- there's no contoured cuffs up there. So, um, <laughs> no no limb protection sleeves, nothing. But they um, 
they uh yeah they started experimenting like what the 1990s and most of the data was from the mere spaceflight missions and they just started uh, using them to the idea was to kind of prevent uh, fluids from shifting from the lower limbs towards the head in the, in the first few days of spaceflight and, and encourage like venous blood pooling and they I mean, there's lim very limited data but um you know we covered it briefly in the paper but the data suggests um that you know it was partially effective in helping um prevent or mitigate some of the changes uh, orthostatic changes cardiovascular changes um during spaceflight and when they returned to earth and like NASA have gone one step further in recent years and like with low body negative pressure. I know Kyle, Kyle Hackney has published on that previously, I think a few years back. Um, so we kind of, we kind of proposed that you know, BFR could potentially be used in those early days, you know, like kind of like a passive protocol that we, we yeah. use for like mitigating atrophy or recovery, just doing something where they, it could be, it could be on the astronaut while they're doing other things. And that's actually one of the, one of the key things with the space aims is like time, like, astronauts time is very expensive like it's something like twenty thousand pounds twenty thousand dollars for 10 minutes of an astronaut's time for an experiment like it's really oh. expensive so any way to minimize time is is key so you know if you if you could do some intervention like that that they could have on their legs while they're doing something else with their hands it could be like really beneficial to the wider context of the mission not just for the, the primary purpose of mitigating the fluid shift yeah and some of the NASA scientists, we had calls with them. I think they got them. They were getting Delphi cuffs and they were just going to try and apply them up there for venous occlusion, just intermittently throughout the time. You know, very nice. low profile way to do it. I mean, basically you need like maybe 50 millimeters of mercury on and off, on and off, on and off, trying to control that. So looks like they're trying to yeah. do that yeah. next step. Nice. Yeah. Well, it was, it was all kind of uh, the Russian base is all low pressures. Don't need. Yeah. They said high yeah, pressure. So much. you, you know, 40, 50 millimeters of mercury, you probably forget it was on very quickly. It's not yeah. much mm -hmm. at all. So. Yeah. It's our, it's our sham protocols everyone uses, basically. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, what not only astronauts' time, the amount of freaking time it takes an astronaut to get up there is crazy. Because we had a, we had a couple of astronauts with us. They're student, whatever astronauts in training. And we're mm -hmm. like, when do you think you're going to get up there? He's like, man, I hope in about five to seven years. That's our average. <laughs> did you, did you, uh, did you have the, the ask cans? I think they're called the astronaut candidate. Yeah. 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 Scott Kelly's, Scott Kelly's book. And he was talking about his time as an Afghan ask and can. two years, Jim. Two years general training, and then you have to wait to be selected for a mission. I know. It's like, what What do you do then for like seven years? Just kind of moping around, working out a little bit, <laughs> waiting, waiting. <laughs> well, they trade, don't they? Like when you get like two years of training just for a specific mission, at least the European yeah. astronauts go through that. And like, mm -hmm. and just general, like they have to do so much like media and outreach. And, yeah. yeah. And they have like a full on like space station in, in the water where they mm -hmm. practice, I mean, parts of it, where they go in the water and just act like they're in space. It's pretty crazy. That's why we need some waterproof BFR cups. I uh, know, so yeah, there we go. Just put, put them inside the suit. Surely those space yeah. suits are waterproof. Yeah, yeah, they should be. Good thought, actually. Yeah. Yeah. This is just what we need is more ways for people to misuse BFR. Yeah. <laughs> this is exactly what all of us are wishing for. Uh, this is this is the it's the social media oh, approach, right? Just word. put it on all four limbs because it's systemic and then you know oh. we're there. 
Goodness. We can try it out if we when you when you guys come over, we'll get a couple of wetsuits, go to the Welsh coast, get the cuffs on underneath, and get in the no, seat. you guys can do that. No. I'm not drinking the Welsh, Welsh, Welsh coast is cold. Yeah, that's yeah. is that before or after the Welsh whiskey? And um, so yeah, I'm just drinking it the whole time. Uh, maybe maybe after, so keep it a bit warm. We'll see. So fluid shifts a problem, bone obviously a problem. And then I guess the other key piece, which is the no does, is muscle, right? Anything different yeah. that happens in space with muscle? I mean, I think you noted like muscle protein breakdown starts to really rise. Is there is, is there something weird with space that we don't see with just non-weight bearing on Earth? Well, I suppose in general, space is considered like a space flight is an analog for disuse and immobilization and aging on Earth and also issues of mobilization and aging on earth are an analog for what happens in space flight so similarly when you when we have the reduced mechanical loading and reduced neuromuscular use or sensory input etc you don't have to control the legs and we get the atrophy we get decreasing muscle point synthesis that we see with disuse and then also increased breakdown rates potentially more than what we would see on earth i don't really know why if i'm completely honest but that culminates in um, you know, a negative impact on muscle protein um, balance, and then you get the atrophy. And then there's more and more data now coming out on me, including some of these key papers in the paper, showing that actually satellite cell content and uh, myonuclear number decreases um, in space and quite rapidly, and which is believed to contribute to atrophy. But then also another issue is when they come back to, to Earth, it's like that they have a reduced regenerative capacity because of this the lower satellite cell content satellite within the muscle yeah so yeah. um yeah. the atrophy is always going to be like an issue it's going to be hard to completely mitigate that um you know even in hypergravity like on the moon it's still not 1g and ultimately humans adapted or evolved in 1g so um yeah that seems to be seems to be a key issue so i suppose the processes mirror um what happens on earth it just seems to happen a lot quicker in space in terms of like if you compared it to aging and sarcopenia for example because it it seems like bfr could be such a way in these long conditions to just add so much volume with so little downside maybe less co2 i mean whatever on that piece but you know they're not having to to go through because you put on it like they do two and a half hours a day of of like strength training and, and aerobic exercise. And, you know, you see someone like Jacob Nielsen study, it's like, if you do BFR twice a day for three weeks, you've really upregulated the satellite cell and increased fiber size because it's BFR. We know you can get pretty good hypertrophy, you know, and there's this whole strength versus hypertrophy kind of debate, but it sounds like muscle loss is really what you got to go at. You're not worried about strength as much. I mean, I was, obviously that's a big deal, but you really want to maintain muscle mass. Yeah, the muscle mass seems to be the the kind of key issue, and like what a lot of the like space bedding team at ESA, for example, are, are quite focused on. Um, but yeah, I think like the two and a half hours per day, so that that includes like time to set up um, for exercise, do the exercise, and then break down as they call it, and then personal hygiene. But they're still doing so about forty five minutes of resistance exercise and forty five minutes of aerobic exercise per day, six days a week. So wow. that's that's a hell of a lot. But it's still not able to it's still not enough to mitigate. Yeah, exactly. So I think you know, in terms of time, a few things we proposed in that paper were related to. We kind of built off um, 
kind of a pioneering paper from the European Space Agency's space medicine team. So like John Scott, Toby Werburn, and Dave Green did a special topic in Frontiers where it was focused on optimization of exercise countermeasures to spaceflight, and they had different groups submit papers. There was actually another BFR um, one in there, but mm -hmm. they identified in, in the kind of overall paper which introduced the topic. They identified a couple of ways that we could potentially optimize countermeasures to spaceflight. So, one of which was called combined training. So, they want to look at forms of training that can impact multiple physiological systems. Um, and obviously what we know from BFR using like a rope restriction with aerobic exercise, for example, we not only can we get aerobic adaptation, we can get muscular adaptation, potentially bone adaptation as well, potentially mm -hmm. tendon. We don't know yet, but you know, so that that's one of the ways we, we propose that BFR will be really beneficial because you can do one type of exercise and potentially impact, um, all of these systems. But more specifically in relation to your question, Johnny, or your point is that they spend a lot of time exercising and one of the other strategies they identified was more efficient training whereby we could reduce the time without reducing the the efficacy and and we we cited and described that that classic abe paper where they did low intensity cycle training 40 percent vo2 max i think it was yep. 45 minutes versus the same for 15 minutes with vfr and mm -hmm. Yeah, and the improvements in muscle size and strength and, and I think VO2 max and time to exhaustion, if I remember correctly, and mm -hmm. like just showing that, you know, a third of the volume in terms of actual time prescribed was able to not only produce comparable adaptations, but greater. So we that's another way we've proposed that BFR could be beneficial. It's like you maybe maybe we don't have to do as much. So you have less time for exercise and more time for, for other mission related tasks as well. So and then like with the BFR exercise protocol, you know, we're getting all these benefits simultaneously, we think, especially, I think aerobic exercise could be the way to go um, yeah. with all these, this different impact. I think I'm getting more and more interested in the aerobic side of things. Yeah. Um, as a research they, they always, they always do well. Every, I'm like, you want a good BFR study? Just do aerobic. It always mm -hmm. seems to work, but you yeah, couldn't get it absolutely. on the, the small one. Right, you wouldn't have a bike or a treadmill if you're going to Mars. Yeah, so you'd need to. Well, potentially you'd have something small. There's like you can get like the, the kind of they used in, in rehab over here. I'm assuming they used uh, on your side of the pond as well. The small kind of arm ergometers or leg ergometers where you can yeah. literally put them on the end of a patient's bed for someone who's bedridden. So, um, like that that Sunberg pa Sunberg paper, you know, the one with the yeah. localized change and like people lie the recline on their back. Yeah. yeah, so there's, there's those kind of options, but I think okay, um, yeah. I didn't think you know, ultimately, ultimately anything that reduces time can impact multiple physiological systems and, and is low load. Like a big problem for future spacecraft, well, these devices have to have like a vibration isolation system. So, you know, if high intensity exercise may not be possible or feasible in these, in these spacecraft. So, you know, it also depends on, I suppose, the context of the mission. Like, if we're thinking about Lunar Gateway, returning back to the Lunar Space Station, the early missions are probably going to be a couple of weeks, three, four weeks at a time. We're probably not going to see a huge amount of physiological deconditioning to the point where they're debilitated when they return to Earth. The problem will arise is when they're spending time on a Lunar Space Station, spending time on a lunar surface, and then, like, a Mars mission is going to take three years. Like, we don't even know if they'd survive that physiologically. Wow. Like space risks aside, 
space for us to fly. <laughs> back from the space station after six months and they're absolutely ruined. How are they going to cope with, with three years? Well, from what you've said so far, it kind of sounds like they just come back looking like what we think those Martians look like with these big old heads and bulging eyes and stuff. Skinny legs. Sounds like, yeah, yeah and skinny legs. Taller. It's just like, yeah. it's just like they look well, like Ben. They yeah. look like already. <laughs> I mean, I could be a model for y'all's, you know, <laughs> projects moving forward. Skinny legs, big head. Yeah. I'm, I'm in. Hey, you guys, you guys be nice to Ben. It's his work anniversary today. It's, Yesterday was oh I mean, really yeah today's oh, been yeah. work anniversary Ben's day yeah seven yeah. years been so we have seven be, years in seven years we have to be seven. nice to Ben today yeah happy anniversary Ben oh, thanks feel I feel oh. special you don't get anything till ten you know that's when you get like whatever it is <laughs> China or something yeah. so Luke and I'm sure this is something that we're planning to address but it just it popped in my head is one of the things that I remember us talking about when we went to Houston is you know one of the major things they were concerned about and trying to figure out ways to cope with was just the kind of vascular degradation for that time in space flight you know it's you talked about the them coming back looking older i mean they were talking about some of these astronauts coming back almost looking like they're an, an older person with some peripheral vascular disease when they come home and so you know that really also kind of piques my interest with potential applications for BFR, even if it's just the wear cuffs and do intermittent venous occlusion or something like that to get just the intermittent hypoxia for VEGF for some sort of maintenance of vascular structure along with what you're doing to the other lean mass. Yeah, it's really interesting point, Ben. I think like ultimately what's kind of happening probably on a, a smaller scale in the astronauts is what you get with patients with peripheral arterial disease here, here on Earth. And there's actually a guy over here in the UK that uh, I'm working with looking at using BFR and IPC in these types of patients. And we're looking at targeting, like he's a vascular surgeon, we're looking at targeting end stage patients where their next option is amputation and looking at can we do an acute, they, they can't tolerate, they can barely tolerate walking from the car back into the, the hospital. So it's like, can we do acute intervention to kind of pull them back from that cliff edge, so to speak. But I feel like the benefits would be the same in space. It's like creating that local, because if you think that we're saying you remove, like there's no axial loading, there's no head to toe loading, but there's no sensory input to the legs really. This, they might hook them onto something so they can do some of their arms, but they're not, they're not using their legs. They, they pretty much, if you look at videos of astronauts, they pretty much use their arms to move around and navigate and even help themselves one side of the, of the, of the space station to another. So they just don't use those legs. So it's, it's like minimal physiological stress peripherally. So I feel like that would be, whether it's using it with exercise or, or as you said, passively, intermittently, I feel like it would be kind of a really good area to explore. We know that, the hypothesis is there or the pathway for just hypoxia and increase in angiogenesis and VEGF, F1A, whatever. Do you guys know, is there a paper that's, that's done that and shown that? I've only seen it always with exercise. I mean, Luke, I don't know if you're on, I know Stephen has an IPC and vascular change paper, just a passive application of tourniquet for two weeks. I don't remember the actual frequency of IPC application but seeing some improvements in blood flow. I mean, I don't know if it's a true angiogenesis or just a neurospectrometry blood flow or reactive hyperemia kind of response. He, um, 
yeah, that was during my time at Sigma. I took part that's in that the, study. I that's the seven days paper, ischemic but... preconditioning one, right? It basically mimics yeah. high altitude kind of that one. Is that the one you're talking about, Ben? Uh, yes, I, I think so. Um, would have to yeah, go back. It's daily, isn't it? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think so. Yeah. Yeah, seven days of IPC. Be right. And it's searching. And then actually. Okay. It was muscle VO2, if I remember correctly, because um, I can remember that horrible Eastern complex on the calf during that measurement. Um, Ooh, Eastern on the calf sounds terrible. Oh, man, it was brutal. So you, you had the, the Hawkinson cup. Stephen, if you're listening to this, I'm still, I'm still bitter about it. <laughs> that, 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 that Hawkinson cup, the rapid inflation above the knee, going to 300 millimeters of mercury in like a split like half a second yeah it pumps um, fast so what, yeah and then so stim the calf like just before to like increase metabolism metabolic rate in the calf and then bang this cuff on it's just Ooh. yeah i hated that damn study i like ethically <laughs> i had no choice to take back <laughs> steve was my boss so i had to, i had to do it but um, yeah it's a, it's a cool paper but i, I think the <clears throat> it'd be really interesting to revisit that um in more of a space flight yeah. context and then actually you know look at individualized pressures and 100 120 percent lp and just like things have kind of developed a bit since then um but it, you know, the problem with doing those type of studies on earth is like our suspension system yes we can unload someone but we can't leave them in there for a week i mean we could but we're not allowed to and they're not going to sign up for that so you know you'd yeah. need a you'd need a bed rest study you need a or <clears throat> one thing that is going to be available in the near future <clears throat> from the european space agency at least is these dry immersion type studies where people are like on a waterbed <clears throat> so they're actually like they're not touching the water but they're basically floating on water um and the idea is that you can get these changes you get with bed rest are accelerated rapidly when they're kind of boiled on water so ah. <clears throat> yeah so these studies might be two weeks so All right. um that's Sounds terrible. Option in the future. Yeah. <laughs> Steven's an asshole. Not only did that study, then he's got the making people do a hundred box jumps. Um, he's yeah. done twice. You know, Steven, you need to chill out, bro. Hi, he's got the happiest <laughs> dog in the world, though, man. He goes, he does all that to people at work, and he just goes home. And yeah. Happy he's he's like, I'll, I'll be in, I'll be in Ireland. <laughs> Uh, yeah. my baseball coach used to joke how his you know his dog would run after a ball game that we lost because he didn't want to get kicked but steven's dog is happy well and that was a big thing when we wrapped up our day with nasa was you know what's the safety profile with this you know uh, these are high value targets twenty thousand dollars an hour or whatever you said it was these astronauts are a, a, a big effing deal um, any other things you're concerned with from a safety side? And I know you're speaking at their conference here coming up. Um, so what do you think, Luke? The, the the big thing really was the vascular side for them. Yeah, that's something that came up when we spoke with them previously. Uh, I mean, hopefully we did a good enough job of covering this in the paper, but like one thing that is a concern space is like increased risk of DVT. And there was... Hmm, recently within the last five years reports of of uh, uh, thrombus in, in astronauts and, and they have like you know medication and stuff up there to deal with that but um based on you know 
data in 1G or Earth-based data. You know, we, I mean, I'm not aware of any paper out there that shows BFR directly causing an increased risk of a DVT or of a clot. And that's one thing we know. We say with, with the courses of different things, there's no robust evidence. And actually, the, some evidence, some data suggests it might be the, the other case with stimulation of the fibrolytic system. So I yeah. feel like, mm-hmm. yeah, yes, it will be important to measure um, in terms of, um, you know, doing some acute studies, taking these measures again within a, a space flight analog and on the space station where possible. But, you know, based on, on the data on it, I can't see there being an increased risk of clotting as a result of the FR. Yeah. It just doesn't make yeah. sense. It just doesn't make sense. Yeah. Okay. Well, and you're going to have the DVT risk because you're going to have stasis in yeah. outer space. Yeah. Especially in the carotids in the so. lower extremities. Yeah. You're going to have yeah. stasis for sure. Yeah. So, which, so kinda, is, which is interesting to me. I think every, I feel like recently, <laughs> everything kind of keeps going back to blood flow, blood flow, blood flow. What can we do to kind of enhance blood flow? Um, you know, Johnny and I were just chatting the other day after you had done ACL study day and we had Chris Fry on there, you know, and I was, I was telling him, you know, I feel like kind of it's something that Stephen had hypothesized years ago at CSM was, you know, we have these papers that are BFR papers that basically are just inflate deflate, but they're looking at muscle atrophy, loss of strength, those sorts of things. And they're assigning um, uh, a, a cause to that being this like swelling response, this idea that 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 hypoxia causes the swelling and then that in turn kind of keeps that muscle a little bit healthier, a little bit better able to produce force and stay around. But, you know, I, Stephen had said, you know, I, we, nobody's really talked about the blood flow side. And, you know, I kind of wonder, like, as closely as those satellite cells are tied to the capillary beds. Um, when we see kind of the shifting away from type one fiber to type two X fiber, people are getting more anaerobic. Um, you guys talking about the VO2 max side of things, the, the peripheral vascular kind of disease presentation, it just feels like, you know, anything we can do to kind of normalize blood flow in outer space or in potentially maybe a disuse or a relative disuse scenario on earth would be Kyle, a really positive we, thing. For we don't call muscle. it Earth on this podcast. We call it terrestrial. Oh, terrestrial. <laughs> <laughs> terrestrial. Kyle, it's really interesting. Yeah. I think you have a um, really interesting point, Kyle. I mean, ultimately, if you strip it back, anything that the muscle needs or wants or gets delivered to the muscle gets there via the blood. We try and look okay. at it as simply as that. So, And that's where I thought, you know, blood when you were, yeah, when you were talking about just countermeasures, in my head, I was kind of going, this is, it seems like maybe, you know, actually like aerobic exercise might make a bit more of an impact in outer space with BFR than maybe resistance exercise, just kind of thinking about it from that perspective. Because in my head, I'm like, okay, what can we do to like get the heart pumping and, and push blood around to the area? And, then, you know, can we kind of enhance that maybe with the addition of BFR? Uh, makes me wonder yeah. too, you know, the, you know, we've had conversations recently with Todd Davenport and, Larry Cahalan about these devices that basically kind of help the, the preload of the heart um, in people that have heart failure, where they basically time this contraction um, of like a tourniquet almost type system, but it's the whole leg. Um, they time it with kind of this ventricular filling. The so left ventricle. Force blood, mm-hmm. exactly. Force blood mm-hmm. into the heart through this really rapid inflation of these cuffed kind of systems. And it makes me wonder like, 
something like that, you know, but maybe in reverse that would force blood actually distally um, um, might make some sense too. I'm just like, my head's kind of going all sort of different directions right now. I'm just thinking about what, what might actually be important and, you know, where things could go in the future. So anyway. Well, you, you talked to Larry, like his reason why he was so excited to get into BFR research was the muscle hypothesis for the heart, but also stroke mm -hmm. volume. I mean, he's just mm -hmm. like, yeah, dude, we, this stroke volume thing can be huge, but yeah. I, I dude, the, the vascular side with BFR is, is going to be the future. I mean, it, it, yeah. there's so much yeah, potential. Like it. I mean, you like, even listen to Jeremy nowadays. I mean, he's really like stoked about potential of the vascular side and yeah. because you can maybe do it without exercise. Mm -hmm. that's, that's mm -hmm. Or super easy exercise. Yeah. Right. Super easy. Right. You just, yeah. you just need, I think we're, we're going to be at the point though. It's like, it's gotta be high pressure yeah. or a hundred percent pressure. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Well, yeah. and yeah, I mean, thinking through the potential of that, I've always wondered if the kind of steady state, longer duration inflation, you know, more time under hypoxia, if the hypoxia is really linked to this HIF-1A VEGF release, is that better or would it be better to do something more intermittent? Like, yeah. you know, Luke, almost like what you guys did for your pain study, you know, is that kind of retrograde, <laughs> antegrade shear stress component <laughs> driving some of this VEGF release and adaptation, you know, and yeah. I, I just kind of wonder, that, like, what that. is the natural state of skeletal muscle in these scenarios? Like, I don't know that we even know that. Like, it would actually kind of make sense that potentially in muscle already you have HIF-1A present because there's a relative amount of hypoxia, hypoxia due to the fact that they're just not using muscle as much. I and mean, we know that normoxia is what breaks down HIF-1A, so it's potential yeah. that maybe this muscle actually already has kind of yeah. these high levels of that. And it actually needs like the physical yeah. kind of stress potentially on that tissue too. So, cause sheer stress, we know kind of plays a role there and all that. So. Yeah. The hypoxia is going to be a really important factor with the space flight research going forward. Like yeah. the future spacecraft, it's, it's a thought and hypothesize that it's going to be conditions are going to be hypoxic to an extent. So, as an example, the, the bed rest study we're, we're taking part in next year. And in that particular study, while we're looking at lumbar pelvic deconditioning, the purpose of the study is to look at countermeasures to to, to mitigate um, the, the deconditioning. And there's like 12, 11, 12 different investigator teams. So people looking at bone, muscle, we're looking at the spine, there's people looking at fluid shifts. So it's one huge study, but um, they're going to be, the participants will be under hypoxia and the artificial gravity countermeasure along with some exercise involved during artificial gravity is going to be done under hypoxia and future spacecraft will be like you know people will be under conditions of hypoxia and one thing that kind of going back to your point carl and ben's point about the the blood flow and the retrograde shear and different things one thing to you know if we're doing aerobic exercise in space or even just resistance exercise with bfr mm -hmm. in space we don't we don't know the the magnitude of like reactive hyperemia and reperfusion because we don't have that 1G stimulus helping promote that as well. Right. So is it going to be, you know, that's, that's, that's another question we need to, right. to look at is, is it going to be as, uh, as intense, I suppose. Yeah. You, I mean, so, you'd imagine yeah. it wouldn't be. Right. right. It just shoots right back <laughs> to the heart instead. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's crazy. I didn't even think about that. Yeah. Uh, well, so there's yeah, tons, tons. To I know answer. you, 
you got a bone paper coming out. So just, you know, we've probably talked about it a ton on this podcast, yeah. but, but some of the mechanisms you want to just kind of briefly touch on or why you think BFR could help an astronaut with bone. Yeah. So I saw it's kind of the, the paper, um, which hopefully be out in the next few months, but essentially the purpose of the paper is to, to build on kind of the, the acute and chronic papers looking at the effect of BFR and bone metabolism, which predominantly have looked at bare bone biomarkers. So markers of bone, uh, modeling and remodeling processes and then obviously we had the paper from from, from Corbin and, and his crew looking at their bone mineral density and stuff like that, ACL so um, <clears throat> the purpose of the paper is to say look here's <clears throat> BFR um, here's some acute evidence and now this is pioneering paper that suggests it might actually improve bone health objective measures here's why it's important and here's how we should do it properly <clears throat> so we think about how bone normally adapts <clears throat> or what's, what's thought to be the primary stimulus it's like the, the high impact high loaded multi-directional unaccustomed loads like you jump in your plyometrics your resistance based stuff and anything that's like you know habitual accustomed loading repetitive low intensity like your cycling isn't thought to be primary stimulus bones like nah, um, this is boring <laughs> yeah exactly like but the intense i think stuff. it's <laughs> bones an adrenaline junkie but, but like it's not just like although mechanical loading is like widely thought of as the primary stimulus, primary orthogenic stimulus, bone also responds to a lot of metabolic changes. So alterations in pH, alterations in calcium availability within the blood, um, multiple things, some actually bone response to some some factors released into the blood from the skull muscle itself. It was we know it responds mm-hmm. to growth hormone, VEGF, all these kind of changes we see with BFR. So Yes, mm-hmm. BFR is inherently low load, so that you know the, the loading, the the high impact, multi-directional on the custom load isn't there, but the metabolic stress is there and then some. So if it's you know if, if we're getting the hypoxia, a uh, one alpha upregulation of VEGF, improved blood supply, increasing growth hormone, all these different factors, that's how you know we think and we propose in this paper, BFR might impact bone predominantly through those pathways. So. In an astronaut on the, uh, in space, or even let's say on the moon, when they're at sixteen percent body weight, it's going to be hard to load them to the to the intensity that typically thought to be required for bone adaptation. But if we can if we can stimulate the bone, the local bone tissue, through these metabolic changes, then that might be be beneficial to stimulate adaptation in that way. In the absence of the of the high mechanical load. Yeah, that's. I think combining Corbin's paper and Lambert's with that care bullet paper, I just think is awesome that, I mean, heavy and BFR did basically the exact same thing for bone. Low, low did nothing in that. So the, the, so the, the kind of the idea for this, this, this paper with, with, with Chris Sentner from over in Germany, um, we've done it together. The idea is to kind of set out a methodological framework for any BFR bone related studies going forward so perfect yes you you know if you look if you look at acute changes you've you've only got your your bone biomarkers you can't you're not going to see changes on a dexa scan but change of bone against acute so they're the chronic measures so the bone biomarkers can give us an indication of what's happening to the bone acutely but actually if you look at the general bone literature and what what thought of as defined as optimal in terms of the biomarkers you select the time force of when they should be assessed how the studies should be controlled. The actual the BFR evidence is really poor in that respect in terms of 
yes, it might have included some of the key biomarkers, but actually the time points where it's been measured in BFR exercise and maybe shown no change is because that particular biomarker is known to peak within the first 50 minutes after exercise and then return to baseline. And then a BFR study, for example, acutely may have measured it at 40 minutes post and reported no change. Doesn't mean that there's uh, been no change. It means that you've measured it the wrong time. And missed it. There's so many yeah. factors. Yeah, I was actually surprised, like in terms of how much control and how many confounding factors there is to like acute and chronic bone metabolism, but more so acute. So hopefully this paper gives us a bit of a framework to do this stuff and, and to kind of optimize and look at those mechanisms. Look at major. I think, it, and I think it's things. important right now that we that we kind of acknowledge and highlight, if you will this fact that we, we think there's definitely some potential for BFR to impact bone in a very positive way. We have mm -hmm. absolutely no clue what are the best parameters to even begin to elicit a response. Um, we mm -hmm. have no clue if it will help heal bone that's injured. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, we definitely have thoughts and we think that there's some potential there and we're happy to kind of conjecture on how to sort of build a program, but we don't know a minimal dose response. We don't know optimal. There's like, it's just this big mush of, we don't know. Um, but here's how you could maybe program exercise to really optimally kind of simulate skeletal muscle and do these other things. And that probably has some really way to be a freaking party pooper, dude. Whoa. Hey man, like, <laughs> There's already a con ed piece out there telling people how BFR heals fractured bone and oh, doesn't geez. cite yeah. one yeah. single human study. So I just, yeah. I don't want people walking away from our podcast thinking that yeah. they just slap a cuff on and do 20 minutes of exercise <clears throat> and BFR yeah. is going to fix their bone problem. Like that's, that's yeah. not a thing. There's a whole lot of layers to this bone piece that... Yeah, we don't. We just don't know. And even if none of that works, bone loves muscle. Yeah, so right. you're losing exactly. muscle; it goes south. If you're giving it muscle, it's happy. There's there's a crosstalk. Yeah, yeah. that's typically yeah. the talking that's point the, that I take. Is just what, yeah. Since we don't really have the data on bone, let's let's stick to what we know, yeah. which is the muscle. Yeah. And how the hell are you going to control for a study on fractures and really have enough? Yeah, you know. Uh, of a, of a similar model. population yeah, you gotta go with the animal model yeah, yeah animal I mean, and people don't like animal yeah. models even though it's the only place where we can actually control yeah. variables well you can't yeah the like the art the only way you can really do, sorry johnny go on no, no you go ahead Luke. i talked so the only way much. we can really <laughs> the only way we can really do these these studies is like as Carl said we have no idea what's up on mineral doses like all these we're controlling for like circadian rhythms, nutritional status, sex, genetics, all these factors that I've learned recently influence bone metabolism and how the bone responds to acute and chronic exercises. We have to control for all of these and then do a carabolic type study where we say, right, here's a, here's a 14, 16, 18, 20 week program. And we're going to compare mm -hmm. directly to high intensity. We're going to have low intensity with <clears throat> BFR 80% LP, another 40%, 20%, whatever, then a low intensity alone in a control group, measure all these mechanisms, these changes in VEGF, and, and then have a look at the the objective measures, the DEXA scans and that, and assessing it that way. Um, and then that's the, that's going to be the starting point where we, we see something there, we can think there. But one thing I always point out to people with the BFR, especially like when I talk about pain, for example, or we, 
discuss how it might or hypothesize how BFR might have an effect on bone. As Carl said, we don't have any objective data yet. You know, the first real piece of objective data is the with the study from Corbin yeah. and Lambert really out there. But it's it's that we haven't got a specific BFR and bone protocol. We haven't got a specific BFR and pain protocol. We haven't got a specific BFR and vascular adaptation protocol. The same protocols yeah. we're using, right. the same protocols we're using are impacting all these systems. So again, like right. you know, if you put if you're putting the if you're putting the cuff on to rehab a muscle injury, but there's also a bone injury, and you're doing 30, 15, 15, you're doing your, your LOP, 80%, your 30 second rest, you might be impacting multiple physiological systems, which would be great if so. But ultimately, you've usually got one goal for doing that. So anything else is like an added benefit. And at, at present, we you know we know BFR exercise causes hypogesia, and we started to identify some of the mechanisms um, in my previous postdoc, but we know so little about it. And, like that wasn't a specific pain protocol. It was just your standard BFR, what we think is optimal at the moment, but yeah. we actually don't know if that's optimal. Right. So, well, like Jeremy said, you know, it might be, it's just a simple change of pressure. Like yeah. I got a vascular patient. Okay. We know this is the pressure we need to use type of thing, which will be so cool if we get to that point. Yeah. I mean, that's like yeah. dialing in medicine there. So we just need some trials. Yeah. It's like so interesting. Well, I, and one of the biggest questions, and this came up um, in the ACL study day with Kyle and, and Chris Fry, is like, what's the minimal dose? I feel like like we're we're going we're we're dr driving so much towards working out what's optimal, myself included. But recently, <laughs> I thought, oh, take a step back. What's the minimal dose? Like, what is the bare minimum we can get away with? And that's not mm -hmm. just from being lazy. It's more of a you might have some individuals, some populations who are so deconditioned, they, they, they mm -hmm. can't do anything at all. Yeah. It's like, what's the minimum we can do to have an acute benefit that day one, then do it again day two and increase? And then, you know, similarly for astronauts, yes, they're not as deconditioned and low compromise and debilitated, but they're constrained in terms of time and equipment. Mm -hmm. So what's the absolute bare minimum we can get away with to, to mitigate changes? I feel like that's another really important, besides the BFR research that, hasn't seemed to be explored really yet. Yeah. Yeah. And, and the, and the, and the, the added layer to that is that probably involves not only some parameters on the BFR side of things, but also an assessment of the individual to see what their training status is, because depending on your training status, your minimal dose is going to be different as well. So, um, you know, do we have like, you know, an ability to actually kind of like, for example, I'm thinking along the lines of like a, an older person where we've, we've talked with Dr. Fry about, you know, the lack of blood flow in the muscle and that kind of being this sort of mediating principle as to whether or not we can get adaptation. Well, you know, some older people have good blood flow in their muscle, some don't. So how do we determine like who's who and how do we best prescribe exercise for that specific individual? Um, there's but so much would be so cool if it's like, okay, yeah. we're going to do the vascular protocol to get your baseline right. blood, you know, for this first month. And then we're flipping to the strength and hypertrophy protocol and we're just changing whatever yep. parameter needs to be changed. Right. Right. How do we make that decision? That would, is kind of the question. Yeah. 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 One thing that I would love to do given the time, and me and Stephen spoke about this a couple of times is, is to revisit Jeremy's meta-analysis 2012, looking at mm -hmm. like what was optimal load, optimal yeah. rest period, uh, and then just go because it probably hasn't changed too much, but there could be there could be some uh, additional like key talking points from that. But I feel like so we start exploring 
loads and rest periods and durations and, and all of that. Continuous we, inflation we could actually versus be, intermittent. We, you know, yeah. we could be way off what's optimal at the moment for all we know. So. Right. Yeah. right. That's absolutely That is crazy. That is a 10-year-old paper. I didn't even think about yeah. that. I mean, think how many new studies. I mean, even studies that are personalized now using LLP. You know, that wasn't even looked at because we haven't right. really had that data. Huh. Yeah. So, Luke, one of the other questions they had for us was, what does this do for the hematopoietics, specifically platelets? So can you touch base on kind of what happens to the blood, you know, for an astronaut, and especially when they get back to, to 1G? And, and how BFR might help? Yeah, so in terms of our paper, that was, that was actually Kyle's expertise, which mostly filled yeah. that, that section. But um, what... Kyle Hackney, not this Kyle. Lim- yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I've appreciated you saying his name every time because I'm like, every time I'm like, wait, no, this isn't me. Okay. You could just say uh, smart, <laughs> smart Kyle. Smart. Okay. Yeah. Here we go. Oh, oh, oh well, he is really smart. Look. He's smarter than me. Smarter than See, Luke. Yesterday was my day. Yesterday was National Kyle Day. So today, really John was. to pick on me. Yeah. 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 Was it? Where was it? Was it your work anniversary as well, or just some? No, it was just that? National Kyle Day. I'll send you the text message. I he, forgot to send it to you yesterday. He just found some obscure website that yeah. had it listed as National <laughs> no. Kyle Day yesterday. Yeah. <laughs> Which I didn't you find know, it. My friend it, it happened it to, to coincide. He was celebrating me yesterday, day. and he, yeah. he sent it out to all of our mm-hmm. staff, and all he got was a bunch of eye rolls from all of us. Yeah. So. <laughs> <laughs> it was a great day. Chris, Chris supported yeah. me. Hey, our, our computer, else. our computer guys supported. Computer guys supported me. Everybody y'all have a weird. Y'all have a bromance, anyways. So yeah, I like Chris. <laughs> He's my um, bestie. But yeah, sorry. Back to back to Kyle Hackney, not <laughs> National Kyle. Um, <laughs> so basically, this again limited data, which which tends to be the the story with astronauts. Yeah. Um, but suggesting that a lot of the astronauts have hematopoietic hematopoietic disorders and like altered responses when they return to Earth. So changes in blood cell mass and obviously changes in blood flow, which we we discussed. Um, and it has been linked to hematopoietic stem progenitor cells, so HSPCs, as Kyle Hackney likes to, to, to call them. Um, so, so he's done a couple of papers now, I think, on that, um, looking at the role of hypoxia in upregulation of these cells. So um, if I'm completely honest with you, in terms of my understanding of exactly what happens in the spaceflight context to these when they return to Earth, is limited because we, we have limited data to, to draw upon for that. But what has been documented in these astronauts is they do have changes in plasma and whole blood volume and changes in, in, in the mass of different blood cells, which tends to make them more predisposed or present with symptoms of these disorders, whether they've actually developed the disorders or not, or it's just they've acutely developed the symptoms we don't know yet. Do they give them whole blood when they get back are they are they getting things like that that you know of i don't know to be honest um i'm not sure i don't, I don't know if the, the nasa guy said anything to you i mean i've not come across or read anything um related to that but i suppose you know if a three-year mission to mars they're gonna have to have some frozen blood i'm assuming because I think it, so. 
an inju- injury and lost of blood. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> Never mind the actual changes to blood cells. Yeah, exactly. So I don't know if they're, if they're given any blood um, on the return. I'm not sure. Um, yeah. Well, it's yeah, down. So, that, that They said that's a big deal is trying to get platelet and just blood volume up in the post reconditioning phase. So yeah, Kyle did show ACE2 was up, uh, the progenitor cells were up. We That paper we did with the Andrews guys, an acute bout of BFR, platelet count was was significantly up and the progenitor cells. So it seems like there's, those are just acute studies, um, all you, of those. Do you think no, that's like hypoxia mediated? Because those papers I find like extremely interesting and that's like an area of BFR or area of like blood physiology where I'm kind of like, whoa, what's <laughs> this is like pretty technical mechanistic stuff and do you, yeah, do you think that's how is BFR having such an, a, an immediate acute effect on these platelets for example which are usually only called upon in the event of needing former clot yeah. yeah yeah I know I know I'm, I'm not sure but I, I don't think it's volume related because the Andrews ones they really wanted to hedge their bets so they did four exercises um, bilateral and showed this this kind of Decent increase that, that went away. And then, but mm-hmm. Kyle and them, they just did 10% 1 RM, like a leg extension, like basically, I think it was a Biodex and found the same thing. So that's that's really low volume mm-hmm. and, and found it. So it, it might be like, yeah, it's more of a hypoxia thing. Did, in the hanging paper, did they look at platelets or was it just the CD34 positive? CD34 and ACE, yeah. Yeah. Because what was interesting too about that the Andrews paper is the timing of the platelet increase. You know, on the multiple times that they looked at it, it was really just like immediately after deflation, it was significantly up, and then thirty minutes later, you know, whatever the next time point was, it was not elevated anymore. Yeah, don't know, I but it was an anti-cubital anti- blood draw, and they yeah. did the leg exercises, so it wasn't like. They trapped platelets and drew it out of the popliteal vein or something. It was it yeah. was a systemic. It's um yeah like stripping it back, I suppose. Like it's just another example of how like what we were saying from from, from the paper, the HSBC just don't behave as they normally do when they're in space and acutely when they return to Earth. I don't know how long that lasts when they return to Earth, but in terms of like cell differentiate differentiation, proliferation, like the things just don't work as normal. And BFR might be a way to potentially kickstart that physiology again. And I suppose that's that's kind of what we're we're talking about when we're saying about how the muscle behaves, satellite cells, muscle points, and just the vasculature. It's kind of I suppose if we had to put an umbrella term on it, on it all of how BFR might be <clears throat> impacting the physiology side of things, forgetting the operational benefits. Like yeah, it's just kickstarting things that aren't being used as much as they normally would be in in, in terrestrial or in one G on it. If you good job, good job. Yeah, good job. Keep, <laughs> keeping it keeping it astronauty here. Um, if you were to have the European Space Agency come and they say, Luke, you get to do one thing with BFR. It can be preconditioning, it can be reconditioning, it can be in space. Where do you think we should start? I mean, ultimately astronauts are pretty, pretty fit individuals. Um yeah, they you know, are. They, Exercise is mandated as part of their job. I actually recently thought that all astronauts love exercising. So I, I spoke with the NASA crew and like, it's just, it's just mandated and part of, part of their job. But I think in terms of preconditioning, they're already in a pretty damn good condition when they go up there. 
um, because we they know you know we know the amount of deconditioning they they're going to be exposed to or should present with and and they also have to be fit to be able to perform their mission safely and effectively. So probably wouldn't start with preconditioning. I'd be really interested to probably be during space flight or, or, or reconditioning. I think if you could, probably I would go for during, because if you could show BFR, potentially it's more effective as a countermeasure during space flight, then if they come back in a better condition or less deconditioned, then surely the reconditioning isn't going to need to be as as thorough or they're not going to need as much reconditioning. Uh, it might be a shorter time frame because I suppose it's like it's similar to like rehab and before surgery. The idea is that we can put them in a better position after surgery. So I would go for the during space flight and I would get them jumping with BFR, which we have been we have been looking at um in the suspension system. But we do we do have um just 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 analyzing just written up on just kind of finishing putting it together but we have done an initial study in the in the suspension system here. So we've looked at just simply measuring, automatically measuring LOP using the Delphi PTS and looking at, so we've, we've looked at bed rest conditions, which are analogs for space flight, and then we've suspended participants in the suspension system. So we've done um, offloaded them, simulated microgravity, so no head to toe loading. Then we've done the same at six degree head down tilt, which um, mimics the fluid shifts like you get congestion in the head within like a minute it's crazy and then we've also done 9.5 degree up tilt um, which simulates lunar gravity and the idea was that before we do anything with, with BFR in a space flight context we need to be sure that the, the gold standard measurement we use for it to be safe and effective works and how it might be different and might yeah. be affected and kind of building upon one of my PhD studies will be looking at the effect of body position and, and, and the seal jacks paper um, did the same as well. They compared super, super high and upright. And um, we've actually found that LLP is, if there is a difference in LLP. So for example, if you had um, someone in 9.5 degree head up tilt on a bed, which is the angle used to simulate lunar gravity, and then you put them in 9.5 degree head up tilt, but without loading in a suspension system, LLP is different. Um, and mm. there's differences in some other um, and some other other conditions we've included as well, without going into too much detail and boring everyone. But essentially, the you know what we think is going to be the conclusion is that well, you can't measure LLP free flight on it and then prescribe BFR exercise relative to that. If there's going to be a difference in LLP, therefore 80% is going to be different. And then actually, if you take it one step further, so we so we need to basically measure it in space. And that's not just my way of, of getting the space agencies <laughs> to, to allow me to send a device up or go up, preferably. But um, uh, if you think about the changes in space with the atrophy, the changes in blood flow, LLP is going to change over time. Yeah, probably. quickly, that would, that quickly. Would, that, would, that would quickly as well, yeah. So you, you need to be able to measure up there. So we've, we've shown that you can conduct a measurement in, in simulated microgravity and hypergravity. And we've shown that it's reliable test retest, which we would expect based on the the, the data we have um, in one G, so the next step would be to to look at that in actual um, microgravity. And I think you know once we know it can be prescribed, then we can really start exploring um, its use. And I think one of the key key areas we're looking at got we've had the ethics for the study, but we're going to go straight in with some plyometric type jumping exercise with BFR. Um, that's something that discussed with European Space Agency and 
there's going to be a little collaboration going on with that. So that's that's something they're really interested in at the minute. Space Agency is jumping into space, potential for impact on muscle and bone, and it being quick. So we want to look at can BFR make high intensity jumping more effective, or can it can it can it be in, implemented during submaximal hopping and and then potentially make the you know the acute response greater, similar to like what we typically do with BFR, can we reduce the exercise intensity and put the cuff on to increase the response? So there's a couple of ways we're gonna we're, we're gonna look at that, which hopefully yeah will lead to some and that's some cool that's not too much vibration. <clears throat> this is one of the concerns for the study, so I think we're gonna like it not not so much for us, and um, we we can jump in our suspension system like but yeah. ultimately future space flight the idea is to is to minimize vibration so you you do have like vibration isolation systems and if you look at um like John Kennedy and a couple of the guys from St Mary's actually where they did the they did a parabolic flight earlier this year with the the jump sled that they developed which was developed in a Pilates studio actually interesting but <laughs> they um they looked at jumping on the parabolic flight so that's that's something that you know space agency I think that's that's developed further to be basically almost clear to have for a technology demonstration in space so we know jumping is something space agency is interested in so I think that jumping with BFR and then the aerobic side of things is probably where we're going to start and the difficulty is like on earth you can't really do any training studies we can simulate we can simulate hypergravity and gravity, but we can only look at acute stuff so we can do the acute crossover type of studies but we can't do anything chronic unless we get access to a bed rest or a water yeah. bed so We'll but that would translate. We used to do BFR jumps on the shuttles <laughs> systems, you know. So basically, jumping with twenty-five or mm -hmm. fifty pounds on there, and it's mm -hmm. a smoker, man. But we just did it without any reason to say why we're doing it. Just a screw with service members. <laughs> it's uh, <laughs> be good. It's fun, right? Yeah. Doing it in, yeah. the, in the lunar gravity is is really good because you go up and you're like, oh. Damn, I'm actually not going back down straight away. Which is actually what <laughs> oh, oh, but yeah. So when you guys come over, we'll have to, to get you doing that. Nice. I, yeah, so. I don't I don't know. I was a pretty good basketball player in my time. I already know what that feels like. Just yeah. floating through the air. <laughs> oh wow. The, the epitome of yeah. 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 <laughs> Dude, yeah. If you want to feel like you're a, a slouch, go hang out with a couple astronauts for a day. Yeah. They're like <laughs> six two, six five, just like rip shape, and guys like, yeah, I'm a doctor and a PhD in nuclear physics. <laughs> you know, it's just like, yeah, oh. yeah, flight surgeon, and, yeah, in astronaut, yeah, yeah. On the side, I'm a, it's I'm a Air Force pilot. <laughs> great, honestly, it's absolutely crazy. Like this, yeah. there's one um, NASA astronaut. I forget his name. Is it maybe Johnny Kim? Who's like, like Navy SEAL. Navy SEAL, medical doctor. Position, yeah. I'm like, yeah. I'm like, this guy's not actually that, you know, he's like maybe 10 years older than me. I'm like, what have <laughs> I been doing all this time? <laughs> been in the pub too much. I mean, yeah. yeah. No <laughs> personality at all. No. Yeah. Yeah. Make sure he's boring <laughs> as hell. Cool. Any other questions, you guys, or anything I else do. you want to add, Luke? All right. Here we go. Um, it's going to be an hour. Yeah. No, it's not. But it's something we have not talked about. And you, you, I mean, you guys briefly touched on it in your paper. So I'm really kind of curious, largely because there's a very big conversation in like the ACL reconstruction world 
about the nervous system and how the nervous system is changing after these injuries to the knee. And generally, you know, it's, it's believed presently that the nervous system is changing in large part due to the injury at the level of the knee, the actual tear of the ACL, arthrogenic muscle inhibition, all of those, those things that have that the, the joint itself is, is telling the nervous system essentially to kind of change and to use the muscle in a different way. I'm, I'm really kind of curious and no one ever talks about, well, does the muscle feed back on the nervous system? If you just kind of stop using the muscle, does it feed back on the nervous system and does it change the nervous system in some way or, or, or vice versa? So, um, and, and if you think about it, it like at some level, it kind of goes back to blood flow again, because we have what neurovascular bundles. So um, I'm just kind of curious on, on your end, Luke, um, what, what do you feel like we know about? Does the nervous system adapt? Does it not? Um, and how do those things kind of interrelate? I mean, it make, it's a good point, Carl. I think it, it makes sense in terms of, as we're starting from the, the input almost is like the lack of a sensory stimulation. As well, like one of the one yeah. of the um, areas that I know ESA and teams at ESA have been interested in is looking at countermeasures that combine sensory stimulation with exercise. So, for example, mm -hmm. being on like a an uneven like force plate or something that where you almost like exercising on one of those like half balls where you have to like balance yourself yeah, for like neuromuscular controls kind of thing. But I know it would make sense to me that lack of sensory input would lead to changes coming back out where the muscle is not activated as much um so yeah. it's not as good as it's not as good as turning itself on which we think is what happens with i mean you guys are clinicians you'll know more than me but we think that's what happens with with the acl injury side of things where because you're not using the the, the knee extensors of quads that they just they lose their ability to, to turn on as yeah. quick that inhibition linked to pain and swelling as well but i think right. lack of sensory input would be you know a, a big factor in that right we're back to we don't know. Yeah, well, I mean, I, I know that's kind of where it goes in the end, of course, but I'm just kind of What's curious. What's your thoughts, Carl? I feel like you're, like, in terms of, you know, like, lack of use, whether that's from an ACL injury or from lack of I, I think it's very, I think it's very hard to remove one from the other and to really tease it out, yeah. which, is, which is why I have such a problem <clears throat> with us seemingly kind of, like, tipping our hat to AMI. Um, and it, and it actually being a joint driven thing. Um, you know, I think that, um, it makes a whole lot of sense to me that if you stop using a muscle that the nervous system goes, Hey, hang on a second. Um, we used to be getting a lot more afferent kind of feedback from this region. Um, and it makes a lot of sense that you would see central nervous system changes, like the brain kind of trying to figure out the hell is going on with this quad. It's not, it's not doing what it typically would do, you know, and, and, and right now you're in a circumstance where you're not using the quad because it, it freaking hurts to use it, you know, when you put the weight down on the limb. Mm -hmm. I, I, th I think if we look um, farther down the road to the work from Sue Sigward and those and, and, and uh, Matt Chang, he needs, he, Sue Sigurd gets to mention a lot because everybody knows her name, but Matt Chang, also part of that study where they've actually studied, here we are six months later, 
after this person's had their ACL reconstructed, they've been going through rehabilitation. We watch them move and they look like they are moving normally. But when we actually look at the force plate that we have in their shoe, that's giving us feedback as to how they load that limb, they are still unloading their quad. So this unloading is sustained for a very, very long time after ACL injury. And I feel like the AMI side of things points to, oh, it's because the nervous system has changed, da, 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 da. And I'm going, yeah, but you can't, you can't remove the disuse piece from that equation, you know, <laughs> until, until we do that, I, I, for me, I'm like, all right, on my end, I want to know what the hell can I do as a rehab professional? And the thing that I can do is I can, you know, use interventions that will provide activity to the muscle where we're seeing the problem as, as much as possible, you know? And so that's where I think like minimum effective doses and, and, and that sort of, yeah. sort of thing becomes really, yeah. really huge too, because we know how, how much do you have to do this and what parameters, um, and for how long post-op does it really matter, you know? Well, and is there a way to kind of figure that out? Do we need people to have force plates on their shoe, you know, uh, to really kind of optimize ACL reconstruction and rehabilitation so we can start figuring out when they actually start using that limb normally because watching them walk into our clinic, watching them squat, you know, even measuring their force output, um, those things don't answer that question. Um, and it I seems almost like it's... Like it's protective, you know, like it's trying to get you not to use it. And, and, you know, like Chris showed, the muscle changes after these injuries. So if the muscle's like, screw it, I'm going to go stiff. I'm going to give up my satellite cell, you know, content. Let's just change what this limb does now. It, it seems like it all kind of ties together in this kind of evolutionary stiff limb disuse model. Yeah. And so, also with the, the case in, you know, Grabber's argue case in paper showing the decreases in blood flow kind of goes on along with what you're saying, Kyle, as far as it, yeah. you know, it's probably, it's, you know, we're looking for a single answer and it's always multifactorial, of course, but, you know, is it really just dumping all this stuff? Cause all the input it's getting is don't use it or I'm not using it. So I don't really need it as much as well. And I think it's pretty clear from that 2019 Nobel prize in exercise physiology and medicine, there's more than a hundred different gene responses literally tied to hypoxia. 300. It's, it's 300. So it is a, it is a basic way that our physiology functions. And so I think to just, just ignore and not pay attention to it in a situation where, well, we know type one fibers are going to go away. What, what do type one fibers use for freaking energy? Oxygen. Yeah. Right. So I just think look, we gotta, we, it, we're not going to solve this problem until we actually really investigate it thoroughly, I think is where I land. And I just don't think it's been investigated thoroughly and just looking at the brain and seeing changes when people yeah. try to do certain things, it's just not enough for the puzzle. It's, it's interesting for sure, but it's not enough for the puzzle and it's not freaking solved by blinky glasses. Yeah. It's a, it's a messy area to, to, to kind of separate out. And, yeah, and it is. It is. Messy, and, I, and, and I don't want what, to minimize that. I make jokes what, about it, but I no, just yeah. think it's like people. No, yeah. 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 It's tough. And like, there's more recent data that shows that there's actual changes in like, Gray tissue, so white and gray matter after spaceflight, and you know we don't have 
don't have data as far as I'm aware. Maybe I've missed it on my yeah. cortical spinal excitability and inhibition in astronauts. Certainly not in space. But that's, that's what I'm super curious about. You know, but, but that like, so this what happens. There's a guy in um, in Northumbria up here, a physiologist who's um, does a lot of like TMS, and he's looking at like cortical spinal changes in like postmenopausal mm-hmm. women and aging, and actually has some early evidence that cortical spinal tract and its function like becomes less efficient with, in, with menopause and it may be a direct result of like a hormone imbalance which occurs in menopause mm-hmm. and these changes so it's like looking at looking at those tracks and how they might adapt to space flight which essentially is reduced loading and reduced sensory stimulation and using yeah. like your ACLs and people as an analog on it I think is is interesting but those measures sure. are always going to be hard to get in flight but yeah yeah yeah, so I'm grossed out now. As, that was too much neuro talk. As, uh, <laughs> as any good podcast ends with us, we've come to a big shrugging. Don't really know. Uh, <laughs> so we just became a answers, and you didn't. We just became it. a Cochrane review. What are <laughs> 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 oh, I'm using that. I'm uh, using you just gotta uh, make sure you enunciate like when you say that word. <laughs> Uh, Kyle, Kyle really likes to speak in absolutes, especially when it comes to oh, science around the course. So, Mr. Black and White. <laughs> yeah. All right, man. We've kept you too long, Luke. I know it's late over there. Thanks, man. Fun, I'm happy for you. I know you've always wanted to get into the space side. And, dude, I hope one day you become an astronaut and get to go up there because I know that's your goal. But if not, <laughs> I've got maybe Rexham will get promoted and, and you'll be just as happy. <laughs> I might take the latter at the minute, to be honest. I think I might opt for the latter. We'll see. <laughs> All right. Thanks, now man. I want to go see a Wrexham game. Go watch it. It's good. Yeah. All right. we'll take care, everybody. See you. See you, guys. Thanks for listening to the Owens Recovery Science Podcast. Owens Recovery Science is a single source for PTs, OTs, ATCs, DCs, MDs, and other medical professionals seeking certification in personalized blood flow restriction rehabilitation training. Find them online at owensrecoveryscience.com. One last thing before you get out of here. Quick moment just to say thanks for listening to the podcast. I think we've probably said it two or three different times now, but we really mean it. Um, But we also want to make sure that you... When you listen to this podcast, that you understand it's it's not medical advice. We we do our best to make sure the information that we give through this podcast is as accurate as it can be, but it should not be used to treat patients. Those decisions need to be made by a physician, by the appropriate rehab clinician, those people that are licensed to care for that individual in that particular state, nation, etc. And so. This, is, this also goes for any guests that we bring on the podcast. They're not providing medical advice. This information that you have received here as entertainment should not be taken in that way at all. And it should, not also, it should neither be used as expert witness or testimony in any sort of legal proceedings. So um, thanks for listening to that and, and understanding that. And we will see you next time. Or wait, we're not going to see we'll we'll hear not we'll you'll you'll hear us yeah thanks okay